You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. The Song of the Soul On a dark night, inflamed by love longing, O exquisite risk, undetected I slipped away, my house at last grown still. En una noche oscura, con ansias en amores inflamada, oh dichosa aventura, salí sin ser notada, estando ya mi casa sosegada. Secure in the darkness, I climb the secret ladder in disguise, oh exquisite risk, concealed by the darkness, my house at last grown still. A oscuras y segura, por la secreta escala disfrazada, Oh, dichosa aventura, a oscuras y encelada, estando ya mi casa sosegada. That sweet night, a secret. Nobody saw me. I did not see a thing. No other light, no other guide than the one burning in my heart. En la noche dichosa, en secreto que nadie me veía, ni yo miraba cosa, sin otra luz y guía, sino la que en el corazón ardía. This light led the way more clearly than the risen sun to where he was waiting for me, the one I knew so intimately, in a place where no one could find us. Aquesta me guiaba más cierto que la luz del mediodía. A donde me esperaba, quien yo bien me sabía, en parte donde nadie parecía. O oh, night that guided me, O oh, night sweeter than sunrise, O oh, night that join lover with beloved, lover transformed in beloved. O oh, noche que guiaste, O oh, noche amable más que la alborada, O oh, noche que juntaste, amado con amada, amada en el amado, transformada. Upon my blossoming breast, which I cultivated just for him. He drifted into sleep, and while I caressed him, a cedar breeze touched the air. En mi pecho florido, que entero para él solo se guardaba, allí quedó dormido, y yo le regalaba, y el ventalle de cedros aeredaba. Wind blew down from the tower, parting the locks of his hair. With his gentle hand he wounded my neck, and all my senses were suspended. El aire de las almenas, cuando yo sus cabellos esparcía, con su mano serena, en mi cuello hería, y todos mis sentidos suspendía. I lost myself, forgot myself. I lay my face against the beloved's face. Everything fell away, and I left myself behind abandoning my cares among the lilies, forgotten. Quedeme y olvideme, el rostro recliné sobre el amado, cesó todo y dejéme, dejando mi cuidado, entre las azucenas, olvidado. Greetings, uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome 
to turning to the mystics. Thank you, Jim and Mirabai Star, for that absolutely beautiful reading of St. John of the Cross's poem, Songs of the Soul. What a beautiful way to start this season. I'm just going to take a pause and a breath to let that soak in a minute. Welcome everyone to Turning to the Mystics Season 3. I'm here with Jim and we're very excited to be launching a new season focusing on another 16th century Spanish mystic, John of the Cross. I thought it might be helpful to listeners for us just to go back through where we've come from. So we launched in Season 1 with inviting people to understand this practice of Lexio Divina and then uh, Thomas Merton was the first mystical text we, we looked at. And then in the second season, we uh, looked to Teresa of Avila. And now we're turning to St. John of the Cross, another 16th century mystic who was actually a friend of Teresa of Avila's. So can you just reflect on where we've come from and why you have chosen that path? Yes. Yes. Um, you know, first of all, I think what I'm doing here with this whole series is, is very personal in a way. And what I'm really doing is sharing um, the mystics whose teachings have had the most effect on my life personally. That is the mystics starting when I was in the monastery uh, that I was introduced to by Thomas Merton and which I've been reading over the years and then teaching on retreats. And so I, I started with Thomas Merton because when I was 14 years old and started reading Thomas Merton in high school and through high school, Thomas Merton was the first teacher uh, that I was exposed to, mystic teacher. And then because when I went to the monastery, he became my teacher in person for three years. So I, so I, start with, I started with him for that reason. I also started with him because he's contemporary. And uh, therefore, he speaks our language. You know, he's he like the present-day mystical dimension of discipleship and of life in the world. So it's that personal reason he's the first teacher I had, the teacher that helped form me in his writings and in his life. And also, uh, for the st students, he, he's a good place to start because he's, his language is contemporary. Unlike the others, we have to do some translation from other centuries. With him, we don't need to do that. So that's why I started with Thomas Merton. Then, next in that same kind of personal way, what happened for me actually was um, the first classical text of the mystics Thomas Merton helped me in was St. John of the Cross. But what I'm trying to do here in this series, basically, is to go back and forth between a woman and a man mystic, back and forth. So because we started with Merton, um, then after I started reading John of the Cross, th then I got into Teresa. So but to move back and forth, so I, but I went to Teresa next, so we would do a woman next. And then we're in general, starting now with John of the Cross, that's the reason. So likewise, as we keep moving through this, I want to go to 14th century English mystics 
And so I want to go to the Cloud of Unknowing, and I want to go to Juliana of Norwich. So the students is following my own personal path, but it's also introducing them to different schools of mysticism. So you have Thomas Merton, who's contemporary, 16th century Spanish mysticism, 14th century English mysticism. And then we're going to do John of the Cross and uh, Meister Eckhart and uh, Mictelda Magberg as the German Rhineland mystics. Like that. So that's the logic to this sequence. Yeah. I like the rhythm of it too because Thomas Merton was your teacher and then Teresa of Avila was St. John of the Cross's teacher. And so we're going from teacher to student. We are. And actually, what happened that way with, with John and Teresa, how it happened that way, is that when Teresa um, was in the Carmel, the Carmelite, cloistered Carmelite monastery there in Avila, uh, when she felt called to do the reform uh, of the order to the discalced Carmelites, this, to life, a deeper commitment to prayer, poverty, and simplicity, and so on. And um, in the process of the reform, she asked John of the Cross to join her and do the reform for the priests, for the friars. Well, at that time, I, he was just ordained. I think he was 28. She was 51, I think, something like that. She was older. And so what it really was, in a way, they were kind of like uh, mutually, mystically given friends who mutually understood each other. And although he was so much younger than her, he re she respected the depth of his mystical experience. So in a way, there was a different than chronological age. So they kind of gave spiritual direction. They gave spiritual support and affinity to each other, I think, as two gifted mystics. And, but you do get this back and forth between two mystical lives crossing each other like that. Yeah. Can you describe a little bit more about what was going on in the Carmelite Church at the time and why Teresa and then John of the Cross felt so drawn to make some changes? Yes. In 16th century Spain, Avila is a walled city, medieval, because of the, the Mormon, because of the Moors, the invasions, when all that was going on with the, the Muslim with the thing back and forth, all that. And the Crusades earlier, this long, complicated history. So Avila is a walled city uh, to protect itself during this un during the uneasy times. And just outside the walled city is this large cloistered Carmelite monastery, uh, monastery of the Incarnation. And Teresa was a nun in that monastery. And so this is a long-standing cloistered contemplative order in the Catholic Church. And she felt called to uh, return to a more primitive observance of the Carmelite order, that it had become just the bureaucracy of it and the size of it. And there were other social factors, too, that she felt called to return to the simplicity, the silence, and the prayer. So that was her. And uh, she also realized that the similar thing had happened with the friars, with the priests of the Carmelite order. They're not cloistered. It's a, a commitment to prayer and then also then in ministry to preaching and service to the community. And so b both John and Teresa both saw it would be advantageous for the Carmelite order to return to the origins of a, of a commitment to interior prayer, silence, poverty, simplicity, 
and so so that was the spirit of it. And then what happened then is we, uh, is is that the Teresa went on with the reform and then founded with the first house of the reformed inside the walls of Avila. So it's a small comment. And, and both comments are still there, and there's nuns in both of them. So they're both ongoing convents there. And, um, and so she started the reform. But this also then came up against the politics of the Carmelite order and um, the resistance to that. Because they did, the, there were movements in the order that they were against the reform or against the implications they needed a reform. And so they both had to deal with, with the political back and forth of all of that, you know, to the point that with John of the Cross, they captured him and put him in a prison there and whipped him. And, you know, it was a kind of a horrendous thing. And um, so anyway, that's the story. On What's, that. What was the final outcome? Was, did the reform kind of take root? It, it went on. It, it, the, 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 yes, it's, wow, it went on. It was a complicated kind of shift, circuitous mm -hmm. thing. But it came established, and the Discalx nuns went on there. And today, all over the world, the cloistered Discalx Carmelite sisters. And um, the, in the Discalx Carmelite pre, the order was also there. So that's in the big picture, it all evened out and, and, and moved on. And so you have a dis, the Discalx nuns and the friars today in the church, yes. John of the Cross has been a really important mystic in your journey. Can you tell us how you got introduced to him? Uh, yes, I think you know. I think Thomas Merton was the first Christian mystic that I read in high school, Sign of Jonas, which led me to go to the monastery and be with him as my teacher, which is real grace for me. But then, with with Thomas Merton's guidance. Um, I began to read the, the classical texts of these mystics that we're going through in this series. And uh, John of the Cross was the first um, mystic that I read under his guidance. And I can remember having never read John of the Cross before any of these classical texts. Um, I remember the very first time I took with me my copy of John of the Cross and walked out into the woods. and. Uh, sat on the ground at the base of a tree, and I, I read this opening sentence. This is the prologue of how he begins his first work, John the Cross says. A deeper enlightenment and wider experience than mine is necessary to explain the dark night through which a soul journeys toward that divine light, a perfect union with God, which is achieved insofar as possible in this life through love the darkness and trials, spiritual and temporal, that fortunate souls ordinarily encounter on their way to the high state of perfection are so numerous and profound that human science cannot understand them adequately, nor does experience of them equip one to explain them. He who suffers them will know what this experience is like, but he will be unable to describe it. And I can remember sitting there as 18 years old and uh, first, that's the first sentence of the book, you know. And I can remember just thinking, like most of this is going right over my head. But when I read it, the music of it, you know, I felt it was accessing me, like somehow it was about me. 
And uh, it just set in motion this kind of being led by John of the Cross into the, 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 you know, the beauty and the depth of his teachings. It's had an ongoing profound effect on me, his life and his teachings. But the thing is, like with all the mystics, they're beautiful and profound, but he's not easy. And that's why I'm hoping that by our reflections here, uh, once we get the inscape, or once we get the sense of what he's saying, something very intimate, really, once we see it, then we can benefit from the beauty of what he's saying. And uh, so that's, that's the hope here, I guess. You know. Can you go back to that time again? Because I think we have a lot of people who are approaching these mystics for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And how do you balance that sense of, I really don't get this, yeah. <laughs> with uh, trying to find that opening to the poetic or to the, the mystical? Yes, and uh, we'll be talking about it a little later in this reflection with each other now. But, uh, but I, I think this, that um, uh, Thomas Merton once said to the novices at the monastery, he said, uh, John of the Cross is writing for beginners. And John of the Cross says that. But Thomas Merton says he's writing for a certain kind of beginner. And I think the beginner that he's writing for is the, the person sincerely we're living our life and we're following Christ, life of discipleship. And in this process, we get a taste or a glimmer or a longing of something deeper. And that touch of something deeper, like a touch of love, is a touch that's so intimate we don't know what to make of it. But having tasted it, we discover in our heart a longing to abide in it. So I would say that's the point of entry. It's a point of entry that you can tell John of the Cross is writing about something that you, you, you know what he's talking about because you've tasted it. And he's attempting to offer you guidance in how to be stabilized in that. So I think it's like that. So as we read him, we have to be very patient with ourselves, like the willingness to be perplexed. But every so often, there's like the one-liners that get you, like the, what I just read. And you sit in the poetry of it and ask God to help you understand it. And little by little, if it resonates with you, I think that's how we, that's how we're led into the place he's trying to help us find our way into this place. Yeah, that's my sense of it. I love that yeah. guidance you just gave on you need a willingness to be perplexed. Yeah. An invitation for a season of being perplexed. <laughs> really? It's humility, really. Mm-hmm. See, because if we understood it up front, it would be infinitely less of what the heart longs for. It would just be more of what we understand. You know, the closed horizon of what we I checked that off. One more thing I know about. But what is it that I can't understand, but it's accessing me, awakening me to itself, and drawing me into its depth? How can I learn to cooperate with that? Yeah, yeah. How did you proceed from there? Did you um, meet with Thomas Merton and and process it with him? Yeah, I saw him every other week for spiritual direction. And so I talked about other things too that I was going through the solitude, just different things. But um, my when I was into John of the Cross, I would I would make my reading part of, you know, what he was saying. You know, what is I I, I would dialogue with him because I I sensed he he knew it so well or he was it, 
you know, I think he was also the, a kind of a realized person like this. So I just made that part. Then once I got going, then on my own, once I caught hold of it, I just kept reading it over and over. And then I started, when I left the monastery, started giving retreats on John of the Cross throughout the United States and Canada and so on. So the more I kept giving retreats on him, it, it has just become part of me. Really. Can you tell us a little bit more about John of the Cross? Yes, this idea of, of the autobiographical foundations of, these, of the mystics' teaching out of their own life, which helps us to discover the foundations of the teaching in our life, because it's inscribed in, this, in our story. And uh, so to know who he was historically to help us understand who he is spiritually. Um, St. John of the Cross was uh, born in Spain in um, 1542, uh, where he lived his life until his death in 1591, at 49 years of age. Uh, as a young man, he felt called to the priesthood and uh, entered um, the Carmelite order, one of the religious orders of the Catholic Church, uh, which is devoted to uh, prayer and simplicity and poverty and so on. The nuns in the order, of which Teresa of Avila was one, she was a Carmelite nun uh, there in Avila, um, uh, were, they're cloistered. It's a cloister, like the Trappist, like Merton was a cloistered. But the, the friars, the Carmelite priests, committed to a life of prayer, poverty, simplicity, but then also ministry through parish work and serving the poor and homilies and so on. So he entered the Carmelite priesthood. As he was approaching ordination, he, um, in ordination, he was feeling called to go to the Carthusians to leave the Carmelites, which is an order of hermits founded by St. Bruno. By the way, Thomas Merton wanted to be a Carthusian also. The abbot stopped it. They stopped it, wouldn't let him go. And so you could tell he was being drawn towards solitude and like that. So this is when he met Teresa. And uh, she met with him, newly or he was just newly ordained. And she said that she was in the process of reforming the Carmelite order of the sisters, so returning to poverty, simplicity, and prayer. And um, she asked him if he would join her in the reform, not go to the Carthusians, but he could find a more contemplative life within the reformed Carmelite order. And instead would he join her in the reform. And he prayed over it and he felt he should do that. And they were called Descalx Carmelites, which means barefooted Carmelites, because out of their poverty, wearing, being barefooted or sandals, I don't know what, like, anyway, the Descalx. So you have the Carmelites, then you have this emerging reform. So when John of the Cross and his newly ordained priest went to the Carmelite priests, the shoe-wearing Carmelite priests, and told them that he was going to start a reform, they didn't take kindly to the suggestion that they needed one. And they said, look, you just got ordained, like, back off. You know what I mean? Like, don't, don't do this. He said, I, I, I can't stop. And what was interesting, too, is they weren't required to join the reform. They were perfectly free to continue. It's just they were opening up the option of the reformed houses, Discalc's houses. And to show you the spirit of the times, really, don't forget, too, the Inquisition was going on in Spain also at this time. And um, they, uh, because they refused to stop, they captured John of the Cross and put him in a little prison cell in the monastery. It's like a closet very small, and kept him there for nine months. Anthony Padovano says the only noteworthy things to come out of the Roman Catholic Church, and oh, the only 
noteworthy things to come out of Italy are the Roman Catholic Church and the Mafia because they both make you an offer you can't refuse. <laughs> and so <laughs> they made him an offer you can't refuse and they put him in this place. And um, it was cold in the winter, hot in the summer. Light just coming in over a high wind, just one little place light would come in. He had nothing to eat but bread, water, and sardines. And they would bring him out to eat in public, sitting in the middle of the refectory as a punishment. And at the end of the meal, he had to strip to the waist, and they'd each come by and whip him over his bare shoulders for the length of the miserere, the sum out of the depths I cry unto thee, O Lord. And this went on for nine months. And the accumulative effect of the harshness of this, the poor diet, the, the whipping, and so on, his, his health began to fail. And he went into a dark night. Now, now the dark night in one sense, but it was this, what it was in a sense, I think, is a crisis of faith, that he had committed his life to the church. These were the priests that he emulated to, in the scripture classes and so on, doing this to him. And I think whenever we place our faith in the representatives of Christ in the church instead of in Christ, we forget that we're all love sinners. And he became lost. Was this their strategy to change his mind? Yes, to change his mind. And so for nine months, he just refused to change his mind? Yeah, he wouldn't change his mind. He said, because you see what it said about him. He said, I, I'm not changing because I can't. I, I, I believe God wants this out of me. and It isn't up to me. I, I can't do this. If I would give in to what you're saying, I'd lose everything. You know, I can't do it. So what happened in this process is that a more kindly guard um, allowed him to have writing material. Because what he started doing, what happened to him in the night, and it, not just the external night of the deprivation, but the night, of the, the night of the loss of faith. And what it was is he lost the sense of God's presence in his life. Like Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? And he was in a state of despair and the inner darkness of the inability to experience the presence of God in the midst of your difficulties and injustices and so on. And then in that night, he says, O night lovelier than the dawn, a great light broke forth in his heart, changed his whole life. Really. And he's very similar here to the Muslim mystic Rumi. And Rumi's mystical teacher Shems, the, the Muslim community that Rumi was in, uh, were jealous of his relationship with Shems. And so they murdered Shems. And when he, they murdered Shems, Rumi was so stricken by the violence of that and moved by it, he started wailing and whirling around a pillar. And poetry started flowing out, see? Uh, the beauty that flows out of brokenness like this. And um, so uh, he, he, he started writing out this, and it started coming to him as poetry is how it first came to him in the dark. And so he started writing out these poetry, and um, th this is the poem he wrote in prison. This is the spiritual canticle um, in, the, in the prison. I'll just read the first couple opening stanzas. See, he's writing this out of this lost place. See, where are you? Where have you hidden, beloved, and left me moaning? You fled like the stag after wounding me. I went out calling you, and you were gone. 
shepherds, you that go up to the sheepfold to the hill, if by chance you see him I love most, tell him that I sicken, suffer, and die. Ah, who has the power to heal me? Now wholly surrender yourself. Do not send me any more messengers. They cannot tell me what I must hear. All who are free tell me of a thousand graceful things of you. All wound me all the more and leave me dying of all I know not what behind their stammering. How do you endure, O life, not living where you live? See? And so it's the pathos of the depth of his longing that the light broke through you know, out of that. So he escaped from the prison, which he attributed to a miracle, miraculous event. And when he came out, he resumed his work with the Reform, with Teresa. And he started showing the nuns, the Reform, the Teresa, the, the poetry. So they asked him uh, to explain what the poetry meant. They could tell it was very beautiful. And so the works of St. John of the Cross, they're all based on this. So he'll start with the first stanza, like this, stanza number one, and then he'll explain stanza number one in 20 pages. He'll go through each phase. So it's interesting, it starts poetically, then he explicates the poetry through scripture and images and so on, like this. And um, so uh, that's, that's kind of the, the storyline of John of the Cross. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Jim and I had the pleasure of talking to Mirabai Starr about St. John of the Cross. She's been a student of his for many years and translated The Dark Mind of the Soul into English. Mirabai, thank you so much for being here. Would you uh, start us off just talking a little bit about his life and how his life impacted his spirituality and his spiritual journey? Mm, sure, and I'll, I won't linger on his his younger years. I'm gonna I'm going to probably shoot ahead to his imprisonment pretty quickly because that's where I think. Uh, the transformation happened as it did with Francis of Assisi and as it does with probably many incarcerated people. Uh, but he was born into a poor family. He wasn't, it, it wasn't supposed to go, go that way. His father actually came from uh, more or less nobility, certainly a, a privileged family, but for a, a family of, of cloth merchants like Francis of Assisi's family. But he fell in love with an itinerant weaver woman who was poor and was probably Muslim. Definitely, there seemed to have been Jewish roots. And of course, during this time, right after, you know, the beginning of the Inquisition, I'm right after the expulsion, early on in, in the time of the Inquisition, having sangre pura, pure blood, was, was everything. Teresa, of course, we already know, came from a converso family and first-generation converts from Judaism to Christianity. But John, John of the Cross's family probably also had those, those roots, and certainly his mother did. So his, his father's family disowned him when he married his mother, and, and so they plunged into poverty. They had three sons. Um, the 
the father died when John, who I think is the mid, was the middle child, was only like three years old. His younger brother died of malnutrition not long afterwards. And uh, his mother took the two remaining children on the road. They just, they were homeless for a long time. And then finally she found a work as a weaver uh, in Medina del Campo, I think it was. And so it's it's significant that he lived this life of poverty as a young child. It, it also stunted his growth. He was only five feet tall and probably weighed around 100 pounds, which is just the same as me. <laughs> so I, I identified with that. Um, and then when he was 16, I think, he, he found work in a hospital. And his particular task in the hospital was, was basically to work in the hospice, helping people to die. And I think he was placed there because it was quickly realized that he had this gift of deep compassion and this ability to to hold um, the suffering of the people around him. And this great gift of his actually drew the attention of the hospital administrator who then arranged for a scholarship for John to go to the University of Salamanca. And at the time, the University of Salamanca was the place throughout all of Europe where, where the greatest scholarship was, was unfolding. It was also likely that at the University of Salamanca, in addition to being exposed to Christian to the roots of Christian theology, particularly Thomas Aquinas and, and probably Augustine, he undoubtedly encountered some of the Islamic writers and and mystics and was exposed to Sufi, I think, to Sufi mysticism. Um, and that a lot of John's love poetry, I mean, it, the, the roots were in Christian mysticism as well, but I think he he experienced the writings of the Kabbalists, you know, the Jewish mystical tradition, and definitely the Sufi mystical tradition, which uh, later really rises up in his poetry and in, in metaphors like fire and gardens and wine and intoxication and all of those rich images we see in Sufi in Sufi poetry. But he, when he was 25 years old, he became a Carmelite friar early on and decided almost immediately that this was not for him, that the Carmelite church was way too uh, mired in formality and, and disconnected from the burning heart that wants only union with God, right? So he decided he was going to leave the Carmelite order and become um, just a, a solitary hermit. And that's when Teresa of Avila heard about him and they were in the same place at the same time and she summoned him to her. And she said, listen, I've been, I've been hearing about you and you sound like my kind of guy. I would like you to consider not going off into the mountains to become a holy hermit, but instead helping me with my reform movement of the, the you know, the discalced Carmelite or, order that she was creating. And he said, okay, if it doesn't take too long, because <laughs> I have no patience, I will, I will join you. And that became his lifelong passion was serving Teresa's vision, which he so deeply resonated with. I'll be curious to hear Jim's reflections on that vision but what I want to now end with is that as a result of, of John's dedication to Teresa and to this reform movement, he pissed off a lot of people and authority, authority figures in high places and 
ultimately was um, snatched out of his bed in the middle of the night in, in one of the monasteries that he had founded on Teresa's, at Teresa's direction and thrown into a, a cell. Actually, it was a, it was a for, it had been a latrine in a monastery uh, in Toledo. And he languished there for nine months, the, the period of, of time that a fetus grows in the human mother's womb. And, um, and the monks horribly mistreated him, tortured him. They tortured him. They beat him on a regular basis. Usually they'd take him out of his cell and while they were having their meal, somebody would be in charge of flogging him. He ultimately died of the, uh, an infection from recurring, an in recurring infection from those, from those wounds. He was pretty much starved. He lived on the proverbial bread and water and a little bit of salted fish. He was in this tiny dark cell, uh, couldn't see, couldn't even lie down, it's, it said. And it, he did have a miraculous escape. Who knows how miraculous it was? There was probably a sympathetic guard involved, the same guard undoubtedly who handed him paper and a quill so that he could write down the poetry that the guard heard him uttering on a regular basis it seems to me and Jim I can't wait to hear your reflections on this that what saved John when he was in prison what saved his life literally was poetry so he would compose poetry mostly the, the spiritual canticle very very long poem he would compose poetry and then memorize it and speak it over and over again and I think the guard probably um, was taken was was um, smitten <laughs> by this ecstatic love poetry and got him to write it down so that was yeah that was the way he kept his sanity at least if not his life and when he escaped it was Teresa's nuns in Toledo in a, in a convent that nursed him back to to health and it was and it was after he escaped and took refuge with the nuns that the poem, Noche Oscura del Alma, or Canciones del Alma, the, the songs of the soul that we read, uh, emerged. He says it was just an outpouring of love. And then later, as he did with all of his major poems, he wrote this uh, incredibly erudite and complex and um, important prose treatise that we know of as The Dark Night of the Soul. Um, my Sense of the Imprisonment, which also reminds me of uh, Rumi, when they killed Shems. Yes. And uh, uh, he started whirling around the pillar and the poetry started flowing out. Totally, and, uh, Jim. That's a perfect parallel. Out yeah. of that brokenness emerged this gold. It just, just, just broke, just came flooding through. And uh, so, yeah, my, I mean, to, to get at this is that, is that the, in the imprisonment was he lost refuge in his own faith community, who were the very priests who were probably studied scripture, you know, these were the friars of his own order. And insofar as we place our faith in the representatives of the holy, in our brokenness, then we, we that breaks that loss. And he couldn't find his way, you know, that's, it wasn't just, it was the combination of the physical abuse and the heartless cruelty of it with no compassion. And being the very people who were doing this was being the people who was to represent Christ. The whole thing just 
broke open. He just, the whole, the convergence of those factors, he was just a trauma. He was just profoundly traumatized and lost. And then when out of that loss, the poetry started flowing out, is that the poetry was uh, was untranslated eloquence of the love unexplainable just pouring out. So there was no gap between the initial impulse of the light that shined out of the dark and the, the cadences and rhythms of the words that embodied that light out of it. And I think that's something of the intimate immediacy of the, of the poetry. And, so, and I think that's why, too, when we read it out loud, the music of it, you know, we read it, you, you taste the essence of it. So then the person, when he, when he got out and the nuns read the poetry, he said, this is very beautiful poetry. What's it mean? What's it mean? And so it's interesting, he'll take one stanza and then take 20 pages to talk about that one stanza because every little metaphor is, is an evoc endlessly evocative metaphor of this love and it all holds together in a kind of explicated uh, mandala which then offers guidance for the person on the path where he says in the prologue of the ascent, he, you know, he said, I'm not... Right, I'm writing this for certain sisters in the Carmel, certain ones, namely the ones who are being led into this, because the 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 dark night, the the imprisonment was the conditions in which this dark night occurred, which was the loss of the presence of God, and so there are some people that's how it happens to them out of trauma imprisonment, but sometimes on the surface you're just praying, and all hell breaks loose. I mean you're just praying. And out of the prayer, there's no, no God in sight. There's no, absolutely no God in sight. And so he tried to help them understand that God's weaning them off their dependency on finite ways of experiencing infinite love. So being weaned off their dependency on that, the influx of infinite union with infinite love can start coming up out of their poverty. And I think that's part of the brilliance of how he takes that situational core condition in which it happened and helps people realize that might be how it's happened to you too, but maybe not, maybe not. So when I talk this way, and if you can tell, I'm talking about what you've experienced. John the Cross once said, John the Cross, he's, he's writing for beginners, but he's writing for a certain kind of beginner. And Merton once said in the monastery, he said, I think many people are called to this but they have no one to bear witness to them, what they're called to. And, uh, and so he offers trustworthy guidance for people who are in this paradoxical, enigmatic helplessness to offer words of encouragement. And so it makes them so helpful, Beautiful, I think, to us. Well, Jim, I think it would be helpful in this introduction if you'd be able to give us a bit of an overview of where we're headed in the season and yes. and, and perhaps some of the key themes. Yes. See, I, I think that the, the, the thing is so helpful if we can kind of sit with and get the general intuitive picture that holds together everything that he's saying. Because once you get the gestalt, you know, anytime we learn something new, a science or a language, at first there's just a flood of details. 
But as soon as we start to see how they interconnect with each other, like, oh, I get it. See, I, I see what it's about. Then everything is internally consistent with that. And so that's what I'd like to do here. I would like to, and then in the, in the sessions, we'll be walking through these things. So I'd like to walk through this that love. And I want to start first at the most basic level of love's nature as a human being, first just as a human experience, then as illumined by faith, then as his sense of mystical. So I want to start first as a human in nature of love. I think here's one way I put it: um, is that you know we go we go th we go through life the day by day, and the the what happens is that um, we get a taste of love, and ideally speaking, we get it as infant in our mother's gaze. We get it as our father's gaze. Ideally, not everyone's so fortunate. We get it, but there are these moments as we go through life. We get a sense of loving and being loved by somebody. And the thing about this, as we reflect upon it, we get a little older and we start reflecting on love and kind of coming into all of this. We realize in that taste of love that in a way it's, it, it, it's, like, a, 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 it's like a light that blinds our finite eyes. That is, I experience the oneness in love. In my mother's gaze, my father's gaze, the arms of the beloved, my child, whatever it is. By the way, these moments can also come in other ways as well, not just with other people. For example, the poet being touched by loving poetry, or the artist being awakened in loving art, or a solitude, or oneness with the earth, or a service to the community. But there can be modalities in which, in the midst of that modality, we're touched by this love that's in it. And it blinds our finite eyes in this sense. I'm touched by it. I sense its inherent value, like its boundaryless quality. But I know not what to make of it. And I think that's the first sense of the night. The night is actually a paradoxical, intense light. It overwhelms our customary assumptions by being accessed in a oneness with love that we cannot comprehend. I think that's the first taste paradox of the metaphor of night. Secondly, we realize that uh, in this light, as we reflect upon, the, and these touches tend to be fleeting. You know, they don't, it's there, then it's, and as it retreats and we reflect upon it, we begin to see in our heart a longing to abide in the depth of the love so fleetingly experienced. So the next level of the night is the night of unconsummated longings. I can't consummate the fullness of love that my heart longs for, but I know it's real because from time to time it grants itself to me. And I think that's the next level of these longings. I think the next level as we sit with all of this in experiential self-knowledge, we begin to discern what it is that's hindering us from abiding in it. And there are habits of the mind and heart that, that compromise the fullness of what loves ask of us. It can be habits of resentment, habits of withholding intimacy, habits of uh, anger, habits of fear, 
habits of, of not trusting our own heart and being faithful to what we're called to. Being, you know, there's this kind of inner landscape of compromising forces that we realize are hindering us and holding us back from going deeper into the love that transcends these things. Mm-hmm. And Can I ask yeah, a yes, question yes. about that, Jim? The, the habits that hinder us, um, they hinder us in our personal relationships, but are you also saying they hinder us in our access to God's loving relationship with us? Right now, I'm talking still at the level of our each other. Okay. And there, I'm still talking about, I'm talking about the layered interiority and poverty of our experience of ourself and ego consciousness. And the layered interiority of the human experience is love. The deprivations of love is somehow the love's incarnate in that. Love's incarnate as that. John the Cross is assuming that. You know, I think he's assuming the reality of the day by day um, promptings of the heart. See, to follow love, be true to love, and then we're we're all, you know, the the brokenness of ourselves. There there is within us these habits. Of the, see, because we can't, Thomas Merton once said at the monastery, we can't love and live on our own terms. See, And love, because love, we're touched by something. We want to give ourselves to it, but we discover, see, we can't get to where we want to go and stay where we are. See, we can't stay in our comfort zone of where we are, even though our awakened heart's uncomfortable with it, because it's not enough. See? And then we discover, the night is, is that once we see this, we discover we're not able to free ourselves from these patterns. They, they, they lay claim on our heart. Um, St. Paul, I have a thorn in the flesh, ask God to remove it. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And, um, and so I realize I'm kind of stuck with these patterns that are, I'm habituated to them as a kind of comfort zone at one level. This is the essence of addiction, too. I think addictive patterns. We're kind of addicted to these. But the very patterns that we're addicted to for the comfort zone is the very discomfort of the heart that's longing to go to the deeper place. And therefore, I think this happens in marriages. You can see this. People see it coming up over and over. It comes up in, in a parent in having a child. It comes up in poetry or art. It comes up in being a teacher. It comes up in any form where we're trying to serve somebody and give ourselves to it, like we want to be generously present to these people. And we want that, and then we feel ourselves holding back, not just from them, but we hold it back from ourselves, like this. And so we, we, we have to, the night then is the struggle, the ascesis see, of the discipline of love, is how do I day by day see this and keep opening my heart to the love that guides me on and empowers me to, you know, uh, uh, in AA they talk about slow process, slow progress marked by many setbacks. See? And uh, so you kind of, as you lean into it, you learn to be patient with yourself, tenderhearted toward yourself, humble toward yourself. And in that transformation, you're allowed to go deeper unexpectedly. See, through the very acceptance of the limits and asking not to be helped. And you can see how personal all this is, really. You know, I mean, it's every one of us has our own, we're all kind of on this learning curve, I think. And uh, that's how we find our way. The next level for John of the Cross, he's assuming that. 
The next level is it starts becoming religious, in which we realize this love that has accessed us is infinite, because God is love. See, God is love. And this infinite love is pouring itself out and giving itself away as a love offering that is our very life. So my very life is the gift of infinite love to me as my life. And this love then empowers me in being awakened to it, which is religious experience. Faith, I sense the presence of God or the warmth of God or the inspiration of God, the sense of God. In being awakened to it, that I'm empowered by God with the gift of freedom to then say yes to the love and give myself to the love that gives itself to me for in the reciprocity of love. Next, we see that although, how, even though that's very beautiful, we see these hindrances in our heart hinder that. It hinders that. And then we realize that we're, we're, we're really uh, wanting to, being called to not place our faith in our inability to get over that, but place our faith in God who's infinitely in love with us and our inability to get over it, which is experiential salvation. So I, I give myself over. I, I can't attain it, but it's attaining me and my inability to attain it, which is the gift of tears. It's this gift of amazing grace. Once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. We're found in the darkness by this love that loves us so in the darkness. And as we entrust ourselves to it, that light then leads us out of that darkness to put ourselves into the hands of this, into this love. And then we start to see then that the love of, it's the love of God that we see in our spouse, the love of God we see in our children, the love of God we see in our ministry, the love of God. It's really God's love incarnate in and as these ways in which God is present. By this shall know my disciples that you love one another, even as I have loved you, see, one another. And so John the Cross is assuming all that. See, walk in the walk. John the Cross used to say, is there a Christian in the house? You know, like he's saying, like uh, it's the good news, really. Next, next stage. It isn't just that God is loving us and encountering us in our love for each other. God wants us also to encounter the love of God in God, which is prayer. See, that we set aside a daily rendezvous in which there's no agenda but love. And uh, we, we open the scriptures, whatever it is. And in the Lexio, the deathless love of God speaks directly to our heart in the gospels and scripture, whatever it is. We take the love in. In the Meditatio, it invites a dialogue with God, a loving exchange with God. See? And then in the prayer is the heart center. See, help me with this. And then as I end my prayer, Help me not to break the thread of this as I carry this out and find this love in this person, in this person, in this person. And then the next day we come back to the rendezvous again, sit in the presence of God. And then in the presence of God, we start discovering the night. Because somehow in our heart, in the presence of God, we're touched by the love of God. That is, we're touched. There's a moment of being fleetingly accessed by God, not mediated through this person or that person, but directly awakening us within our heart and calling us to reciprocate that love because I tasted it. But sitting here in prayer day by day, I'm, I'm, I'm lost in my half-heartedness. I'm lost in my distractions. I'm, I'm lost in, even, I'm even lost in how hard it is to be faithful to prayer. It usually gets preempted by 10,000 things. 
like this. And uh, so there's this night then of the inability to consummate the union with God, in God, as God, in prayer, heart to heart. And there's the inability to, be, to get past without God's help, the hindrances and the compromises to be faithful to that. So we don't wait until we're perfect enough to do it before we start. We start and continue in our ongoing inability to do it. And we bring that to God day by day by day by day. And that's where we learn and grow. And so there's that. So John the Cross then says, so there is our life. There is a life illumined by faith. The measure of faith is love. And then, then there's hope. And hope is that when death comes, when we pass through the veil of death, we'll pass from these mediations of God's presence and prayer, inspirations, consolations, insights, and service into unmediated infinite union with the infinite forever in a life of glory. That's our hope. So now this is where John of the Cross starts. He assumes all this. He just assumes all this. He's assuming we're living our life. And, and what he's assuming, this is, where, this is Teresa in the fourth mansion. He misses Merton from the false self to the true self. He's assuming that what happens with some people is God's decided not to wait until you're dead to begin to grant you uh, unmediated infinite union with the infinite of paradise in your heart while you're still on this earth. That touch is a ray of darkness. That is, it's a, we're blind, our finite eyes are blinded by this boundaryless light that unexpectedly is giving itself to us in the very midst of our brokenness, the very midst of unresolved matters of our heart. We know not what to make of it. We know not what to make of it, see. And what it is really is that, that God sees that we're, we're, we're going to have to let go of our finite ways of experiencing the infinite love of God. Because, because they're finite, they're infinitely less than the infinite love that we long for. Like, again, you, we, you can't get the ocean into a thimble, but you can drop the thimble into the ocean. And so we can't get this infinite love into this finite space. is too constricted. So now what happens is we're now addicted to the finite. See? See, we're now addicted. We're overly identified with our finite hold on the infinite love. It gives us some semblance of control. I, can, I know where I'm going. See? But you're asking me to pass beyond the boundaries of my finiteness and cross over into your infinite love, transforming into itself. And I'm blinded by this night. But if I'm very patient with it, and if I don't run away, little by little, there are subtle like seismic shifts in our heart. We can start to see this night that in the beginning was so perplexing. See, a oh, night lovelier than the dawn is the dawn begins to break and we start seeing this light shining through unexplainably, you know, in, into, our, um, into our heart. And um, so John of the Cross then says, well, you can see here, I'm not talking about ecstasy. I'm not talking about, I'm talking about something extremely subtle. John of the Cross says, there are some people for whom this calling has been there for some time, but they don't recognize it because they have no one to bear witness to them what's happening to them. 
because it's so subtle. The, that which is essential never imposes itself. The unessential is constantly imposing itself. But there's a higher order wisdom of the awakened heart see, to hold in abeyance the impositions of the finite to keep our heart open to this thing. And this is John of the Cross. He says, let me help you with this. Mm -hmm. Like, been there, done that. <laughs> because sometimes then, the dark night, it can happen out of a life experience in prison. But sometimes it happens as if out of nowhere we're living our life, and like you go to your daily rendezvous with God in prayer, and God doesn't show up for the meeting. See, God doesn't show up for the meeting. And so it's the loss of the felt sense of the presence of God as a night is actually letting God wean us off of our dependency on these finite notes simply by making us powerless to actualize them. God says, let me help you out here. I'll see to it you're not going to be able to do it. And you're going to have to then trust in me and put yourself in my hands. And this is the teachings of John of the Cross. So this is where we're going to start on the first session because where he starts in Senamon Karma Book 2 is how to discern this is happening in prayer. See? This is this, we're going to say this is the starting place. So I think at least for me in sitting with John of the Cross, to see this um, overview like that, to see where he's at, like the landscape he's wanting us to move in, it really helps to put each point along the way in perspective. Fabulous. And Jim, you'll be using the collected works of St. John of the Cross translated by Kavanaugh and Rodriguez, which is a huge book. Um, and Corey, our fabulous producer, will put details in the show notes about the book. I like it because, one, it's a great translation. Also, all the works are in one volume. Also, there's a great introduction to each work. So at the ascent, there's a great introduction and an outline of each work, a topic outline. And all the poems are there in English and Spanish in the back of the book, so it's really great. Um, at the monastery, and over the years, and I still read it, is Alison Peer's translation. They're in paperback. You can get them separate volumes, The Ascent, The Dark Night, The Living Flame, The Canticles One. And then also, Mirror by Stars uh, translation. So, uh, and those fortunate enough to read Spanish can read it in the Spanish. Read Spanish. Mm -hmm. So, I'll, but I'll be using, just for consistency and page numbers and so on, I want to be using Kavanaugh and Rodriguez when I cite. So, I'll say like the Ascent of Mount Carmel, Book 2, Chapter 13, Article 4. And it's to be the fourth paragraph of that, so you can flip to it like scripture, and we can look at the passage together. You know. And it, it's not necessary to get the book, because Corey always puts the paragraphs you refer to in the exactly. show notes. And I would suggest if you do decide to invest in the book, that's a that this that's a lifelong <laughs> investment for you. It's huge, this book, and um, we won't be going into the level of detail that kind of covers everything. Uh, let me so, say something here too. This uh, is important, you know. I think this is for everybody, really, because we're all. This is our homeland, really, and I think for many people, just the podcast itself is more than enough. You know, if I'm really bearing witness to it, and it really touches it. And if they can carry it through the week, like being more aware of that in their life. And as, as we go through these mystics, it's just an ongoing resource for that. For those that are so inclined, it's, it's given to them to do it, then to, then to consider getting the... Uh, and also the next step then will be during the week to read the text that Corey puts up. So you can see in John of the Cross's own words and kind of sit with it so you can keep internalizing it. 
Then for those so inclined, if you want to pursue it, you could take John of the Cross. We'll be talking about that in the series of how to read John of the Cross, of how to become a student or a follower of John of the Cross as one of your teachers, like a lifelong teacher. But I think you have to be inclined to do that. Do I mean, you don't need to, but some, some people, they know they're being led to do that and that's their path. You know? Wonderful. Well, thank you, Jim, for this introduction to season three. Um, I'm personally very much looking forward to it and uh, I think this has been a great introduction, getting us grounded and ready and so thank you. You're welcome, yes, for in a good, good start. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. Please consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend who might be interested in learning and practicing with this online community. To learn more about the work of James Finley, please visit jamesfinley.org. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.